Here's my hot take on grind culture. Because he still had another job while he was like focusing on this business. Yeah. I actually think that comes back to bite you in the butt when you're trying to sell in how invested you are in a business. Mm. I think grind culture for someone else's pockets to be lined is bull****. But grinding for your own success and vision and being in control of your own destiny is not. And welcome back to Another Bite, where we rewatch some of the most innovative and intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory, and I'm joined with Ariel. Hello. And John. What's up, everybody? Today, where's... I'm trying a new hay. What do you think? I like it. It's got like some oomph to it. Do you like it? Mm -hmm. I hate how I say hey on the show. Every time I listen to it, I hate how I say hey. So I'm trying something new. I'm trying... What's up, everybody? I like it. It's got character. <laughs> what do you like think? It. One of these will stick. <laughs> Today, we're getting in the kitchen with three kitchen gadgets the sharks may want a bite of. We'll discuss issues these companies face with distribution, grind culture, and more. But first, let's pay some bills. So here's a word from our sponsor. Ouch. Growing pains hurt. And when you're a marketer trying to generate leads for your startup, you know the pain all too well. Thankfully, there's HubSpot for Startups. It's a special program that gives startups discounts on HubSpot and so much more. But first, let's talk about the platform. The platform unites your entire front office from marketing to sales to support. The platform that streamlines your support tickets, generates more leads and increases sales. The platform that scales right along with you. HubSpot for startups has it all. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit HubSpot.com slash startups. So first in the tank, we have Frywall, and this is brought to us by founder Yanir Rainier, and he comes asking for a $100,000 stake for a 10% equity pull in his business, which shakes out to about a million dollar valuation. So the problem that Yair is trying to solve is that you got a nasty stove, right? You've got splatter, you got food bits, and you know, it's just so hard to clean up some fried grease. So he brings us the product Frywall, which is a simple solution to keep the splatter away. And essentially, it's this silicone cone that's safed up to 450 degrees that you basically place it in your pan as you're cooking. And so the splatter like hits the edges of this cone rather than your stove. Jory, it kind of looks like when a dog gets yep. surgery and they put the lampshade over the dog's head. The cone head. of shame. It's the cone of shame for your grease. It really is. It's a cone See? of shame for your fry. Pan. Good tagline. <laughs> Just for everyone who's a visual thinker. <laughs> yeah. So unlike a lid, you can like stir your bits while you're not like worried about like splatter getting everywhere in the cleanup. <laughs> You can stir your food you items. You can't say that on the air. Okay, well. Yeah, I'm like, is this appropriate? Okay, you can, you can stir your spinach while, you know, you're frying it. And <laughs> he demonstrates this with frying some bacon, which I felt was like very like, mm. ooh, some olfactory selling. And yes. then passes out samples, which were accompanied by wine, which was a very interesting tactic, right? Because it's just like, he's like whining and dining them. It was very engaging, very kind of infomercial. No more grease for your stovetop. Thinking about Frywall and our founder, What are we thinking of this pitch? Okay, so the glass of wine that he passed out to each shark, not only savvy because, hey, maybe if the sharks get a little bit inebriated, they'll be a little bit looser with their wallets, but also because it tied back to his positioning. And I loved his positioning. He did something really unique, which is traditionally, if you're positioning a product, you can either position it as a a painkiller 
or a vitamin. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a good framework. You look at different products and you can think, is that a painkiller or is that a vitamin? And traditionally, painkillers sell lots more than vitamins. Mm. It's actually really hard to sell a vitamin because you don't need it. We're like, you need a painkiller. You've got a headache. You need to take some Advil. But he actually kind of did both. He was so clear about the painkiller side of it, which is that you have a huge mess and you're wasting time. And he was just super direct with it, right? Like, look at the mess and think about all the time you spend over the course of a week cleaning up here. But then he layered in a whole bunch of vitamin benefits, including things like you'll have enough free time to enjoy a glass of wine instead of cleaning your stove. And so I thought he was fully connected in the positioning of his product to how he ran his pitch, including that glass of wine that may also get him some better offers. Sweeten the deal. Yeah, definitely. Looking at this product as of the time of the pitch, he's got some impressive numbers. So sales year to date for this product were $800,000. So despite us calling it the cone of shame, it seems like it's kind of got an audience for it. People are using it. Even the fact that like 70% of his sales came from online, the fact that he generated so much demand from an online perspective and had so many sales, I just feel like I would have went in for evaluation of at least 2 million, I feel like. The thing we did not get the stats on is what his net margins are. Mm. And it's very possible that his cost to acquire customers actually pretty high and that it was expensive to get that 800000 in sales, even though it was done all digitally online. Mm-hmm. You know, if his customer acquisition cost is too high, then a million dollar valuation is totally fair on 800K in sales. So we just, we're kind of missing a little bit of information to really know. But one thing that he brought up that I thought was really interesting and wanted your take on is this idea of like a defensible business, right? Because, you know, the sharks seem to go back and forth of like, you do want to go into retail or you don't want to go into retail. And essentially the founder's response to that was, you know, whether it's through IP or like just completely slaying the competition, he wants a defensible, profitable business. And what does that like actually mean? Well, I think defensibility essentially is about the ability to build a moat around your business, which makes it hard for other people to either take your market share or to uh, destroy your unit economics. Like those are the two reasons you kind of try and put a moat up, I think. There are a number of ways, depending on the type of product that you have, to create a moat. So if you are a company like Facebook, part of your moat is the network effect of all of your users. It's an interesting way to think about it. If you have a physical product, I think the big factors that determine how defensible your business is, besides the concept of IP, which I don't think alone can be defensible because people will always kind of find some way around it. It's basically like how much power do the competitors have and how much power do the customers have? You know, essentially, like if the switching costs for a product are really low, then customers have a lot of power. Right. And so that's one reason that his product is not that defensible. And if competitors have the ability to enter and challenge you on price, Mm -hmm. then that is going to be a problem for you from a defensibility perspective, which kind of means like I don't think he's particularly in a strong defensible position with this company. He could leverage a little bit of time to market to establish brand to become more defensible. And that I assume is what Lori and and he will do is they'll get all on QVC and become known as like 
the brand for this thing. But ultimately, I don't think he actually has a defensible product at all. Interesting. The term itself, I had a hard time wrapping my brain around because I instantly went to, can this be copied in the market? And it's like, I don't think he mentioned that it was patented at all or anything. So So he does have a utility patent on it. Mm. So there's that kind of working factor. There's always ways around patents, though. And like, it's just not going to stop a bunch of like low-end manufacturers, like a cease and desist, fine, okay, they get (laughs) shut down. They run like thousands of these products. This is the thing. He's going to get a ton of competitive price pressure and he doesn't have some like lock-in with customers. It's just not super defensible. Yeah. Doesn't mean he can't win, but the idea that like he is going to be the only silicon ring for a fry pan and he will, you know, defend that for the rest of days by the design of his business, I think is not realistic. I felt like going into this, this is definitely something that kind of aligned with Lori as the shark. Like I could just see it on QVC or Mm. or on an infomercial. So if you haven't seen the episode, essentially what Lori does is she pulls out like the equivalent of like a gold nugget. It looked like there was writing on it, but she calls it her golden ticket. And it's exactly what this founder is looking for. She's basically saying, you know what? I see your vision. I'm going to give you exactly what you're asking for. And not only that, but I'm going to fund your purchase orders with an infinite line of credit. So like holy grail of offers, right? Because she's basically like, yeah, you came in asking for $100,000 for 10%. It's yours and I'm going to fund you, which is huge. Yeah, it's pretty rare, which is why I'm like, okay, so this is essentially he was offering a fair value for the sharks. Mm -hmm. It's a good product. It's all about essentially time to market here and just going big on distribution. Lori's the perfect shark. I was shocked that he didn't just take it right on the spot and instead like started messing around with Mark. And I think that's like such an interesting downfall because we see that happen, right? Where so many entrepreneurs get blinded by this is Mm -hmm. the right shark I think I'm going to partner with that they may potentially miss out on a really great opportunity. I was like screaming at him like, no, take the offer with Lori. Take the deal. (laughs) Stop. And then when Mark said he was out, I was like, okay, at least Mark's doing like the good guy move. He's like, okay, I will give it to Lori. Ultimately, the golden ticket, like in Willy Wonka, was accepted and a deal was made for essentially that asking price, right? $100,000 for 10%. So that was awesome. I mean, how could he not? Like, he would have been so foolish to not take that deal. Totally fair. So thinking about what we know and knowing that there are some pieces missing, would you invest in Frywall? Yeah. 100% yes, because I'm not a fan of cleaning up spilled messes when I cook. Oh, yeah. I got all sorts of kitchen gadgets. I got everything. Really? If I can buy a gadget that helps me do something quicker or easier in the kitchen, and especially one that can go in the dishwasher. Yes, that's what I was going to say. If it's dishwasher safe, I am sold. Which this is. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Which it is. (laughs) Yep. He nailed it. It's a perfect kitchen gadget. He's going to sell tons of them. And I would like to help him do it. (laughs) I have a brief company update for you. This episode was in 2018 and surprise, surprise, it is still around. Not only is it still around, it's coined as the best splatter screen in the country. The company has exceeded $1.5 million in revenue. And nowadays you can find Frywall in the big box stores. So they are dominating the splatter guard space, which who knew was a space, but it is a space. (laughs) 
All right. So speaking of gadgets, do I have another gadget for you? So next in the tank is AnyTongs. And this comes from founder Tog, who is asking for $150,000 for a 20% stake in the business, which shakes out to uh, $750,000 in terms of evaluation. And the problem that this device is solving is that, you know, you never got enough tongs when cooking, when serving food. Your tongs, they take up space. Who has time for that? And there's always food cross-contamination when you use your tongs in the different bowls. And, you know, that's so annoying. So, voila, you have any tongs, which is like this compact tool that you click in your different utensils and it makes tongs out of any kitchen utensil you can think of. You want fork tongs? Great. You want spoon tongs? Great. You want fork and spoon tongs? Amazing. Any tongs can do it. Hold on. We should be clear about what these are. They are just mini tongs where you can stick forks in the end of the mini tongs Mm -hmm. so that the forks become part of the tong. I don't know. I'm not seeing it. They're just mini tongs. They don't save that much space. Like, just buy some tongs. You could buy tongs for cheaper than this. Yeah, because they sell for $19.99. So (laughs) that's a lot of money for like a half a tong. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't sold. It feels like a very novelty product. I will say when the founder walked out with the visual branding on his shirt for any tongs, I legit thought it was going to be a software company at first. Like it just felt very software-esque and it kept throwing me off that like the design materials of his booth were like this blue, fun, friendly, like type of like more interactive branding, whereas his shirt was just like basic. I feel like that's something I would have seen on like in a sauna or in a censure or <laughs> some kind of tech. So I feel like that disconnect threw me off a little bit at first. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, this guy is an innovator. He's not necessarily like full business thinking. He's a designer who has designed tongs, tongs that work <laughs> worse than regular tongs. Not necessarily and worse. And charges you twice as much. We don't know that. Ariel, there's no way they work better than regular tongs. Bold. You can't knock it until we try How it. could they possibly work better? You know, <laughs> you're sticking some forks in mini tongs. Like, and let it also be known that the A of the branding was a tong, which I thought was yeah. brilliant. <laughs> Look, awesome designer. I, know, I love it. No. He's, he's got an idea. It's a horrible business. He wants me to pay twice as much for tongs that work half as well and are half sized. I'm going to be the devil's advocate here. Okay. I think if he could have made the product smaller, more, (laughs) this could sound terrible, not environmentally friendly, like a single time use thing. I could see something like this doing really well at like a festival or like, let's say you're going to like a Coachella or an EDM and you're getting food from like the little food stands. You don't want to get your hands all gross. Like just to include that with like your forks and knives. Like I see it being more of like a disposable offering as opposed to this is something you need evergreen in your kitchen for your cooking on the day to day. I think the positioning was wrong. Let's talk about the pitch. I mean, I love that the product idea came from a core memory. I think it was really sweet. I think Mm -hmm. we hear a lot of these stories about my mom used to do this or my dad who passed away. And I love the story behind it. Yeah, I love the story as well. And it seems like there is a problem in the world that he's trying to solve for people. He's clearly a talented designer. The product itself looked like it worked pretty well. And his overall brand and design was really good. So there's a lot of things to like about it. I'm just questioning whether there's actually a market need for this and especially a market need at the price point that he is at, which is $20 for a single set of tong clips. A device that does the job worse than the actual device that solves for it. Yes. 
I think that it was a really sweet story. This is based on like the memory of his grandmother that used to put utensils on a clothespin and tape it to a clothespin to kind of like have a lot of tong options for their multiple bowls of food, which would like love that. But then there was like some not so great things that came through this pitch too, right? Like this was a Kickstarter idea started for 10k made over 33k that's awesome but then that kickstarter was back in 2021 and this was a product in 2023 and since that kickstarter he's only sold seven thousand dollars worth right so like made a bunch of money on the kickstarter but is now not selling them and he's trying to deflect like covid was a thing and like we have to respect that manufacturers couldn't do as much as a pre-COVID world, but the sharks were not buying this. Yeah. I mean, I think he positioned that conversation wrong, which is like, instead of saying I had $7,000 worth of sales, I think he should have basically said, I was only able to get $7,000 worth of inventory and I sold through it all within X weeks before we hit supply chain issues. So yeah, I think he positioned that wrong a little bit, but the facts are the facts, which is like, he did a Kickstarter. Beyond that, he sold $7,000 worth of mini tong clips. And now he's looking for, you know, a $750,000 valuation, which is just like totally ridiculous. When you put it that way, John, <laughs> yes, it is absurd. There were also other problems, right? There was a point when he was talking about like his social media spend and he's like, got ROI of a dollar. And then he was like, and I got it up to $3, but then I ran out of money. And like all of the sharks just paused and were like, how? If your cost makes $2, you're making a lot of margins. How are you running out of money? I think this founder had a case of, he got really nervous he wanted to stick to kind of these yeah. pre-points that he had in his mind of why things are so great. Couldn't really pivot in the moment mm. of getting some valuable feedback or constructive pushes into like what he was proposing. And I think we kind of see that as the pitch continues to go on. He'll start going off into different tangents. He'll say, I think even at one point, I'm willing to go in for 49%, like just everywhere, mm -hmm. just scattered, which if I was a shark, that would ruin my confidence and like the reliability of working with this founder. Yeah, like not to be too on the nose, but like they're sharks for a reason. And like a real shark, they're looking for flailing in the water. And this is an example of like when the negotiations have a founder that completely loses their cool. And I think the shark's really key in on that because there was at one point he was like, screw it, I'll quit my day job. Mark completely went in for the kill and was like, yeah, don't. <laughs> but I think in terms of like effective negotiation, this founder kind of struggled with the counter offer mm -hmm. and like how to do a successful counter offer. Do either of you like have thoughts about what makes a successful counter offer on Shark Tank? Well, I think in any negotiation, there are like concepts that everybody needs to know. You kind of have to decide for yourself what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. You just need to have a hard line. So if you're going on Shark Tank, you need to know how much equity you're actually willing to give mm -hmm. up. And you need to know essentially what is the lowest valuation you would take. And those two things are tied. But I think that's kind of what you have to anchor on. And then I think you just have to anchor on the fundamentals of why you think your valuation is what it is. And cool, you can negotiate on the actual amount. Mm -hmm. But like you kind of need to know what your walkaway point is. And you need to just stay like like really consistent and repetitive in terms of like, nope, this is why I feel that. This is why I feel that. They're often just trying to feel out where can we get to with mm -hmm. you and how much can we push you here? And I think if a founder stays really firm and knows what their walkaway point is, if it doesn't meet that, walks away, then 
I don't think they should feel bad about it at all. Yeah. I'll add on to that too. I think the other piece that's important in addition to like where your bottom line is for equity is also considering what are some of the other more unique things you would offer as well. So like we've seen instances where the shares or equity that you get up front, equity after you make like a certain amount of sales, would you ever consider a royalty or licensing? So what are some of the other ways you're willing to give yeah, up? Yeah, the alternate fine. Exactly. Yeah. And like having just a general knowledge, because again, the shark you know, they're on their game, they're on their ball, they're going to throw out all these different offers. So it's good to have a baseline of where you kind of stand across all these different scenarios. Yeah. The other thing somebody has to know is how much do they need the deal? Mm. In negotiating circles, there's like the concept of a BATNA. And a BATNA is basically like a best alternative to a negotiated agreement. But it basically means like, if this deal doesn't happen, what are you going to (laughs) do? And there's some value of what you're going to do, essentially, if you don't do the deal. And you should just know what that is. Because if This guy is sitting here saying like, I literally cannot grow this business without a shark. He should be way more open to giving up way more of the company. If he's like, you know what? Actually, like I have a really pretty solid unit economics and I know how to do like Facebook ads. I think I can grow this for a while on my own. Then he doesn't need the deal. That makes sense. Yeah. And one of the things that he had also mentioned was like this concept of grind culture, which was like also super ironic because the sharks, they were like, what's that? And it's just like, says the millionaires in the room, not to like discount all that they've done, but (laughs) it felt like this designer kind of went into it being like, oh no, I'm going to get everything that I ask for. And then ultimately seemed by the end of it, like really desperate to just like get the deals. Get a deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I don't think he had thought that through. So good point. Here's my hot take on grind culture because he still had another job while he was like focusing on this business. I actually think that comes back to bite you in the butt when you're trying to sell in how invested you are in a Mm. business. I think grind culture for someone else's pockets to be lined is bull. But grinding for your own success and vision and being in control of your own destiny is not. And that's just my my take from like entrepreneurial stance. If you're not willing to like grind your entire life into your business, if you're not mm-hmm. showing that already, that you are on that level of commitment, that gives me a pause if I were to be an investor. Yeah. I interpreted the conversation with the sharks just a teeny bit differently. And the way I interpreted it was, you know, he was like, everybody says you have to do all these things and put your family's financial well-being at risk to be a successful entrepreneur. And I think what they were saying was nobody's saying that you have to do that. Mm -hmm. You control your own choices. You don't have to put your family financials at risk. Like you could grow this business without taking third party money from an investor that demands a return within a certain number of years. You could do this as a side business. You could keep working your job. Like no one's forcing you to say that you have to go do these things. Like you could probably grow the business just fine. But as soon as you take somebody else's money, Mm. like I'm giving you this money because you are going to get me a return Mm -hmm. on that money. And I therefore expect you to be fully committed to doing that. I'm not funding a side project for somebody because I don't think the odds or the likelihood of a return on that are particularly high. Yeah, you have to be equally vested. So actually, like despite kind of the flailing in the water, this founder did find a partnership with Damon. So it was for a bit more of like, I think, an equity stake than he was prepared for initially. But Damon offered him $150,000 for 49% of his business to make sure that, you know, he had the controlling stake, that founder. And 
I think at that point in the discussion, the founder was just trying to get any deal, which kind of goes back to what you were saying, John, in terms of like, what will you lose if you don't walk away with a deal? And I think that was the moment that I was like, you need this or this could collapse completely around you. So ultimately, uh, the founder did walk away with a Shark Tank deal for $150,000 for 49%. I think this is a great deal. It's super clear that he has strengths. He has a good story. He's got good passion. He's got good design sense. He clearly knows how to like make products. He should just give half the company to someone like Damon, who knows how to actually go and scale a business and run the business economics of it. And like, I think it'll work. I bet they'll sell a lot of any tones. So would you invest? No. I would have to put a lot of work in. Okay. So that is the thing is if I had a team or I had time that could do this stuff super easily, maybe. But personally, no. For those reasons, I'm out. (laughs) It's one product. (laughs) Totally fair. (laughs) All right, so we are two kitchen gadgets down, one to go. And last in the tank, we have Fry Away. So this comes to us from founder Laura Lady, and she's asking for $250,000 for a 10% stake in her business, which shakes out to about $2.5 million in terms of valuation. And who, buddy? Okay, so the problem this is solving for is fatbergs. And like, yes, I said that right. It's called a fatberg. And content warning listeners before you Google that because you will lose your lunch. But it's essentially what happens when you pour cooking oil down the drain and it like coagulates with the rest of the gunk and it's just awful. It's really bad for sewage systems, really bad for you. So Fry Away is the solution to this problem. And it is a 100% plant-based powder that magically transforms your hot cooking oil in the pan into this solid mass, for lack of a better word. So that instead of pouring this stuff down the drain or like into a container that you then need to dispose of, it turns into its own solid mass that you can just kind of throw away from there. Works with all cooking oils and it decomposes in 30 days. So thinking about Fry Away as a product, less of a gadget, more of like a chemistry product. What do we think about Fry Away? I love it. I am so impressed with this woman. Her sales under $700,000 in the first year of business. And in two months in, Mm -hmm. she was cash flow positive, which is, I think, huge for like a gadget and how early on she was in her career. For folks that are listening, there's a few different ways to look at cash flow. But essentially, your cash flow is your net cash that's generated by the business. So do you have essentially more money moving in than you have moving out? There's a few different areas from operating cash flow to finance to investing-based cash flow. So for her to say, hey, essentially, yeah, we have way more money coming in within the first two months of launching this product was really impressive for me. I totally would have invested right off the bat just personally, but also just the numbers really speak for themselves. Yeah, she is a very impressive person. I think her personal story is extremely compelling. Mm -hmm. Her ability to get this business off the ground and to figure out the manufacturing process in her garage and buying $2,000 worth of equipment to produce it is impressive. And never did this before. Her ability to leverage technology, in this case Shopify, to actually spin up her e-commerce site so that she could sell it was impressive. Her issue is just that she's spending too much on sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. She's spending way too much on Amazon in the form of fees and ad advertising to actually get customers for this product. And the good news is that's just a super solvable problem, in my opinion. So I think that she's going to be really, really successful. 
So you said it's like a really solvable problem. How do you solve something like that? Well, first of all, you would diversify away from Amazon. Mm -hmm. You would say, okay, cool. Yeah, of course I have Amazon. I have to be on Amazon. I get that I need to be on Amazon. You know, right now it sounds like she's doing most of her advertising through Amazon and selling on Amazon. And so number one, I think you would just look at the return and the efficacy of the ad she's running on Amazon and compare on different digital channels. There's a lot of other digital marketing channels that you can go and do advertising on. I bet you can bring costs down that way. And the more she can get her own direct traffic and sell direct through her direct to consumer site, the more successful she'll be and the more that'll come down. So like basically every percentage point that she moves away from Amazon towards her e-commerce site, then that's gonna reduce those costs on a percentage basis. I think, too, the interesting point that she mentioned is she gained so much awareness through PR and earned media, which I think a lot of folks sleep on, Mm. right? And with Amazon in particular, I'm not entirely familiar with how their fee structure works, but I'm assuming kind of the more products that you sell, you would get at like a lower cost or maybe you get some added value back into your advertising. But I think that was such an interesting piece because we're always so quick to be like, let's run this on social media. This is how we get virality. But having those small bits of like whispers within the market or having a journalist even talk about a new product that they're trying out on Twitter, like that is such an important piece that I think a lot of folks kind of forget when they think about marketing is where PR comes into play and how it really does help increase that brand awareness overall for her. So I'm not surprised that she has so much success. I do think that this is going to be a massive word of mouth Mm -hmm. product, Mm -hmm. which is another reason I think she can probably diversify away from Amazon. I think a lot of people are going to tell their friends about it because they're going to use and be like, this is incredible because everyone does the same thing. They put their old oil and grease in a jar. They either put it down the sink, which is disgusting, (laughs) or they put it in a jar and throw it in the garbage, which is not a good process either. This is a really, really interesting and compelling alternative. And plus, it's cool. Everybody wants to see what it actually feels like. The science. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny that you mentioned that, John, because I literally, I texted my boyfriend as I was watching this. I was like, we need to get this because I gag every single time I'm cleaning out the pan and there's like bacon, like leftover fats. And he thinks it's like the funniest thing. But I'm like, no, now we have a solution. So I don't have to gag every single time I do dishes. I think people are going to talk about it. I think it's going to sell a lot. I think she's going to be great. So there's a question about which shark she needs to get help with her sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. And then there's just a question about like, what's a fair valuation for Mm -hmm. her? And I think that's the other big thing that was debated on the show. Yeah. And in terms of the sharks, some started bowing out. Like Kevin's like, I don't eat fried food. And Damon's like, I don't know. Kevin, get out of here. It's virtue (laughs) signaling. The worst kind of virtue signaling. Yeah. He needed to like reaffirm himself. I'm so healthy. Like no one's better than fried food. So we had like some sharks that I feel like for personal reasons went out. But man, when it came to the marketing and distribution bit, did this founder sink the best deal? Because Lori and Mark were all over this product, even if there's an education gap. They ended up kind of going in as a partnership, offering $250,000 initially for uh, 25%. There was some negotiation back and forth, which goes back to like knowing how much you're willing to part with. Ultimately, they settled on 22% and like deal made, founder walked home happy with like the power team that is Mark and Lori. So I think they'll be very successful. I feel bad that her margins weren't better. Mm. Let's just talk about this. And she like to find her margins oddly on the show. She sells this product for $10 and it costs her $1 to make. Mm -hmm. Okay. So she has $9 of gross profit for every sale that she makes, but she's giving a huge amount away to Amazon, which means that the net margin is just like much, much, much lower. And I feel bad because she had like 700,000 of sales Mm -hmm. 
if she had a really efficient digital marketing engine, I actually think she could have gotten pretty close to the original valuation that she wanted. But with the lower margins, it just pulled the valuation down a bunch. And she asked for a two and a half million dollar valuation. She got one point two five million dollar valuation, which is just much more in line with what it should have been given the where her margins were. So it's too bad she didn't get her margins tweaked before she went in there. She might have kept more of her company. And because of that, would you invest in Fryway? If Lori said, John, do you want to do this deal with me? I would have said, yes, 20%. Lori and I, the dream team. Mark's good. John's better. <laughs> Lori and John, we will sell your product. Perfect. And then- If you're listening, Lori, oh I'm available. <laughs> willing to sell products. So Ariel, would you invest in Fryaway? Yes, I 100% would invest in Fryaway. I mean, the founder is really like- competent, knows her numbers, knows her stuff, is familiar with marketing. I think the only piece is just that distribution part. And I'm glad that they negotiated for that 22%. Mm-hmm. So that way she can get a little bit more of like that advisement and kind of consulting from both Mark and Lori without having to give up too much of her business. But I think, yeah, really successful business. I would be shocked if it was not still around. Yeah, it solves like a really common problem. I think that a lot of people face in a fun, like science way. I think that mm-hmm. if any time that there's a product that does something in a slightly fun way and just like makes some menial task, like just a little more interesting, yes. you've got a winner. Okay, so in... Uh, I guess tribute to the golden ticket, I thought we could do something a little bit different this time instead of just saying who won the episode, really saying, I think for us, it would be like a golden bite, right? Like we don't have a golden ticket. We don't have a golden mm-hmm. boom box, but we do have another bite, golden bite. So yes. to trophy your winner, who would you give the golden bite to for today's episode? Oh, fry away. I would fry away all day. (laughs) I'm just going to go full unhinged and I am going to say any (laughs) tongue. Unbelievable. And here's why. Okay. He came in with the most novelty invention that I was sure was not going to like actually get a deal at all. Fair. As the pitch kept going on, it kept getting progressively worse in my mind. And the fact that he was able to walk away with a deal, like something there. Yeah. So a golden bite to the entrepreneur and the tenacity seen there. Yes. <laughs> okay. I think I would give my my golden bite to probably fry away just because I think that like I always have a soft spot in my heart for like products that are kind of trying to help the environment Mm -hmm. is like, hey, we know that there's this substance that is doing not great things. Let's try to find a way to scalably kind of get rid of it. And I just thought like the science behind this was really cool. It made me want to learn more, which isn't always the case with certain products. But I was just like, I want to know how that works. And I think that that's kind of one of the unspoken benefits of this pitch, at least is just like, I think it was intriguing just as a product itself. Yeah, it was kind of like that magical marketing sweet spot Mm because she goes in with more of like the shock and awe marketing, but then also empowering people to feel like, hey, I am leaving the planet in a better place than I left it. And I think anytime you can combine those two things together, you just have a really successful way to resonate with people because everyone wants to buy products and make them feel good. Yeah. Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown. Production support comes from Melanie Romero. Have you told a friend about the show yet? A family member, maybe? 
I told Jerry, my neighbor. You don't know Jerry, but you sort of know Jerry. The guy who sits on his front porch all day, little doggo at his feet, barks at everyone. Not Jerry's fault. Well, maybe sort of Jerry's fault. Training really is about training the owner, not the dog. Anyway, tell people about the show. Okay, that does it for me. We'll see you next week in the tank for another bite.